The Bible teaches us very clearly that the purpose of God in creating man, and by man you know that I mean man and woman, was that he might have a relationship and that he might have fellowship with us. God did not create us just so that he would have servants. He could have done that. In fact, he did. He created angels, which are his servants, his ministers that he sends forth like a flame of fire. But God created people for the sake of bringing them into a love relationship with himself. That's his objective in making us. Now, when sin entered into the world through the transgression of Adam, and then that sin passed upon all of the descendants of Adam, including everyone down to you and me that are here tonight, the relationship was broken. It was severed. And thus every one of us is born into this world separated from God and not in a relationship with him. And so God's purpose in sending his son Jesus was to do two things within the world. Number one was to reveal to a fallen creation who God is. And then number two, to restore man into that relationship that God intended for man to have with him when he created man. That was the reason for the ministry of Jesus Christ, to reveal God and then to restore the broken fellowship that God desired to have with man. Now, we've been following the life and the ministry of Jesus as we've gone through the chapters and verses in the Gospel of Luke. And we saw the first segment of Jesus' ministry that took place primarily up in the Galilee region, the northern part of the country, where he revealed himself to the Jews that were there and thus to us through the things that were recorded. And then we went through phase two of Jesus' ministry as he left Galilee and then made his way over a period of weeks and months through the various villages traveling southward toward Jerusalem where he will then fulfill the third phase of his ministry, which is the Passion Week, where he will lay down his life to redeem man from his sinfulness through his sacrifice upon the cross. And so tonight, as we pick up in chapter 18, and hopefully at least begin part of chapter 19, we're coming to the conclusion of phase two of the ministry of Jesus. That is where he's traveling towards Jerusalem. And so what we have in these little sketches that are before us in this next chapter or so are a series of teachings, parables, testimonies that serve to teach us some of the fundamentals of what it means to have a relationship with God. The things that we see in this chapter teach to us the terms of the relationship that God is calling us into. And so we begin in verse 9 of chapter 18 with the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. It tells us in verse 9 that he spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then they despised others. Now I love that Luke does this and he does this frequently is that before telling us what the parable is, He gives to us the reason for it so that we're able, as we read it, to understand what Jesus is getting at and why the things which were spoken. And so the reason for the parable is because there were certain people that were following in the company with Jesus and his disciples that were trusting in themselves for righteousness. 
In other words, they were seeking to have a right standing with God based upon what they themselves were doing. And so it's spoken to those who have taken up the task of working themselves into a right standing with God. Now, in the process of working themselves into a right standing of God, they've created a standard by which they assume that God measures what is acceptable and what is not in the behaviors of men, and thus ranking themselves in the category that they call acceptable, they have automatically placed others in a category that's deemed unacceptable to God. And so not only are they trusting in themselves for God's favor, but in the process, they're also despising others that don't measure up to the standard that they have created uh, for this thing. And so this parable is spoken to those people. And so Jesus tells the parable in verse 10. He says, two men, and that's what God saw, and that's all God saw, is two men. They went up into the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee and the other was a publican. The Pharisee in the story would probably be the one that most there would assume would be the hero of the story. The one that automatically would be the one who was righteous. These were the religious people in Jesus' day. These were the ones that were approved by the public that they thought these are the ones that we need to follow. In their appearance, they had every look that they were pleasing to God and what they did, and they had the knowledge of God that made everybody else think that they were the righteous before God. The other man that came, it says, was a publican. The publicans were the tax collectors. They were puppets of Rome that had more or less traded their Jewish identity for the sake of a paycheck that they would receive and money that they could get dishonestly most times as they would receive taxes from the people. And so this would be the villain in the story. A man who wouldn't have even the right to come and to approach unto God in his temple and in, in, in prayer in this way. He would be so despised by the people. And yet both of these people go up to the temple to pray. And so Jesus then says this, that the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself or prayed within himself. So he prays quietly so as not to be uh, a nuisance or overheard by others. And he says this, this is his prayer. He says, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Five times in this prayer, this Pharisee uses the word I. And everything that he is bringing to God is the standard that he has set for himself, both the standard of what he is not and that he basically says to God, I am not a sinner like other men are. And then he says to God that I am righteous based upon the things that I do, the fasting and the tithing, the sacrifices that I make. These things make me righteous before you and I thank you for the righteous standing I have based upon the things that I don't do and based upon the things that I do. That's prayer number one. But then it says in verse 13, it says, and the publican, so the tax collector, the villain, standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And so a Pharisee who is measuring himself by his own standard contrasted with a publican who is measuring himself according to God's standard. He calls himself a sinner. And his basis for declaring himself so is the measurement of his life, attitudes, and behavior against the law of God that's revealed in Scripture. And as he weighed his life against God's commands and demands, he realized that he fell short. And so coming to God, knowing that he has no standing in and of himself, he dares not even look up to heaven, but smites upon his breast as if to pound his own heart for its sinfulness, and then he begs God for mercy. And the word that's used for mercy here is not the word that is commonly used for mercy throughout the the New Testament. But the word mercy here is actually the word atonement or propitiation. And basically what he's doing is he is asking God to provide a substitute way for his sins to be forgiven. And so this man understands that it is not within himself to work himself into a right standing with God, but unless some way of substitution is made wherein my sins can be paid for by someone else, then I have no hope of a righteous standing before God. And so he declares his sinfulness and he throws himself upon the propitiation or the atoning mercy of God Almighty. And that's the end of his prayer. Now Jesus applies the parable and gives to us the outcome of these two prayers in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And so two men come to be justified, one by performance and the other by a plea for mercy. And we see that one is justified and the other one leaves unjustified and what this parable that jesus tells teaches us is that the only way for man to come into a right relationship with god is based upon what he did rather than upon what we do that the relationship that we have with him we enter into by grace provided by the mercy that was given through jesus and not by the works that we ourselves do In John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus would say this to his disciples. He would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and the robber. He says that there is one way in. There is one door, essentially, that allows someone to be called part of God's flock or God's fold. And then down in verse seven, he tells us what that door is. He says, then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to kill or to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus calls himself the door and he contrasts every other method whereby man would try to come into a relationship with God. He calls that thievery or robbery. And the words mean to take by fraud. And what it means is that it promises you that if you do this, then it will yield the result. But the robbery is that you can do this all you want, but it can never yield the result of bringing you in 
through the door of the sheep or into the sheepfold. There's only one way in, and that way is through Jesus. Well, why is Jesus the only door into uh, the sheepfold? The reason is this, is because he's the one that laid down his life and paid the price to redeem. And so therefore salvation can only be through grace and it can be through nothing else. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. So we cannot boast of our own salvation. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 the apostle Paul says this to the church at Galatia knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith in Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified even as the Pharisee was unable to attain justification through his works. In verse 21 of the same chapter, Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness can come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. To Titus, Paul would write this in chapter 3, verse 5. He would say, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so the relationship that we're called into by God has nothing to do with the works that we do, whether it be the things that we are not, or whether it be the things that we are, if we fast and tithe and give. None of that matters before God, but we come to him by grace through faith, and our justification is in our recognition of our sinfulness and our plea for mercy at the foot of the cross. And that is the only way that we can come into a relationship with him. And then, after we've come into that relationship, it's important that we stay and continue to come to God through his mercy and not through our works or our religious uh, goodness. And that will be evidenced by a great humility that, that is in our lives towards God and towards men. And that's why he says whoever humbles himself will be uh, exalted and whoever exalts himself will be abased. And so Jesus gives to us this term concerning this relationship is that we come to him through mercy and not through our boasting of the righteous deeds that we have done. That's the way that we enter into this relationship. And then in verse 15, it says that they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, I love this picture because here you have Jesus. There's quite a following going with him as he travels now more towards Jerusalem. The um, climax of his ministry is quickly approaching. And here come these people that are bringing babies, essentially. And they want Jesus, their trusted rabbi, to come and put a blessing upon them, which was common for the day. But the disciples looked at it and they saw the fame of Jesus and they knew who he was. And they thought within themselves that this man is far too notable at this point and far too busy and famous to spend time just blessing and laying hands on children. He's got more important things to do. And so they rebuke these people that want to bring these children to be blessed by Jesus. But it says in verse 16, but Jesus called them, his disciples, unto him and said, suffer little children or allow little children to come to me. And forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Or what he's saying, it's, it's 
people like these children are those that make up the citizens of the kingdom of God. And verily I say unto you that whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, not saying that you have to be a little child and get in when you're a kid and then, no, he's saying that you have to receive it in the same way that a little child would receive it. Unless you do it that way, you shall in no wise enter therein. So he says that children and a childlike faith is the kind of faith that brings someone into the kingdom and the type of person that has childlike faith is who makes up the citizens of the kingdom. There is a a simplicity to a child's faith faith that seems to become lost as they grow into the cynicism of their adult years. I remember going every year as a child to the the carnival that would travel and come through our town uh, once every summer, you know, and I would get so thrilled as we would make plans and we'd go in the family station wagon and we'd go to to the carnival and I would see the rides that were all lit up and decorated with, uh, you know, carnival colors and there would just be music that would be coming from and I'd see these things and I would long for the days when I was tall enough to go on these rides that would, you know, thrust you far into the air and spin you around and make you throw up and, you, you know, and, and do all of these things and I would, I would love it and, and all I could see as a child was fun. But there came a day, and I remember it, sometime in my teenage years, that it clicked with me that it takes them like four days to set up the carnival, but it's gone in two hours. You know, it's over, and then they're gone. And I thought, wait, so that ride is going to turn into a semi-truck in about an hour, and then they're going to pack up and leave. And there came a point where I'm like, I'm not going on that thing. That thing turns into a semi-truck in like an hour. I don't trust that, you know. But, but see, in my childhood, there was a simplicity that just said, yeah, colors, lights, I'm in. But then there was a reason that came in at a certain age wherein I said, turns into a truck? No way, I'm not going on it. And the simplicity of childlike faith was gone from me as the intellect took over. And I said, that doesn't make sense. Now translate that into the spiritual life and the spiritual walk. We read the things that are written in the Bible, the claims that God makes that he is stronger than the laws of science and the laws of intellect. And we see the testimony of God throughout scripture as he intervenes in human life and he overrules the laws of nature and of physics and of science. And we see God opening up the Red Sea. We see God stopping the sun in the days of Joshua. We see God causing and strengthening young children to take down giants and causing battles to be won with just a few against a vast host against whom they're very outnumbered. We see the testimony of God and it requires a childlike faith to believe in a God that's stronger than the laws of nature that we interact with every day. We have a little children's Bible that I took Riley through when he was two or three years old. Now he's four, so we do it a little bit differently. It's, he's kind of outgrown it. But there was one page that he absolutely loved within that Bible. It was the page that told the story of the crucifixion. And in that, that picture, you just see Jesus just hanging on a tree and that you see the blue-colored background. And it's just an illustration that somebody made. But anytime I'd say, what do you want to read tonight, Riley? He would find that page and he would say, this one. And we'd look at the picture and he would just stare at it and I would tell him about the atoning sacrifice of Christ and how Jesus came into the world to pay the price for our sins and that we needed a Savior to die in our place. And I remember one night, particular night, he just stared at that picture. 
And I just said, Riley, do you realize that Jesus needed to die for you, for the things in your life that you didn't even do yet, that he knew that you would do before you were even born, and he paid the price for you to be saved. And if you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and to come live inside your heart, he'll forgive you and live inside your heart. And he stared at the picture. He didn't even break his eyes from it. And he looked at me as a three-year-old. And he said, Dad. I said, what? He said, I think we should do that right now. And I said, okay. <laughs> but the childlike faith of someone who can look at something like that and realize and that the Spirit of God can go underneath the surface of the intellect and trickle through the catching net of the mind and affect the heart. And it's those people that become citizens in the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus teaches us in this parable is not only are we to allow children to freely come to Him because it's their childlike faith that He honors, but that we also are to be like them in this relationship that we have. And furthermore, it is impossible for us to have a meaningful relationship with God in this world without childlike faith. And that's true as we come into this relationship, receiving Him by faith. And then it's true as we walk with Him in this relationship, walking with Him by faith, childlike faith. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to him must believe that he is, that is that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so Jesus exhorts us and he says, do not let your childlike faith be snuffed out by the intellect of a cynicism that comes in adulthood. And then in verse 18, he goes on and he says, and a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so we come to this very famous passage of Scripture that's known as that of the, the story of the rich young ruler. It's not a parable. This is an event. It actually took place in the ministry. It's recorded in three out of the four Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this conversation that Jesus had with this man. Now, in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that this man was rich. Luke tells us right here in verse 18 that he was a ruler. Now, we're not sure if he was a ruler uh, religiously and spiritually or whether he was a ruler politically or otherwise, but in some form, we know that this man had power and authority in some area of life. And Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, that he was young. It says that Jesus said or replied to the young man. And thus we get the title for this man that he was the rich young ruler there. And it says that he comes to Jesus and he says, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, here's the amazing thing about this young man who has authority and money is that he essentially has the top three things that most people spend their ent entire life trying to achieve. He has, number one, money. And if you think about it, most of what people do in their pursuit of this life is a pursuit to gain riches or to gain wealth or to gain money for themselves. People want to be rich. They want the luxury and the flexibility and the, the, the supposed freedom that comes with having a vast amount of resources tangibly or, or money in the bank. And so he has this thing that most of humanity is searching after. He also has authority or he has power. 
And if you think about it, what do people seek to have and to attain within their lives? They want to have authority. That's why they climb. That's why they work hard to, to, to attain and to improve their title or to gain another degree and to have education or they run for office or they run for higher office. And the reason why people do this is so that they might fee, at least feel a sense of authority if not be given a, a position of authority within their world or the place wherein they live. But this man has that. And then to boot, what he also has is he has youth which means that he has a lot of years ahead of him to enjoy the prosperity that he has and the position and authority that's been imparted to him. And again, what is it that most people pursue in their lives? Youth, spending countless hours uh, exercising, taking vitamins, juicing, you know, doing, uh, putting creams and, you know, just different things that people do to try to stay young, to feel young, to look young, to have the feeling inside that what I have is going to last longer than, uh, than I want, than I, than it probably will, uh, in all truthfulness. But this man has all of those things. He's rich, he's young, and he has power, but he's got a problem. And his problem is that underneath having all three of those things, he has the understanding that unless something is done about his mortality, then no matter how much of those other three things that he has, it's a temporary enjoyment of those things. Because eventually he's going to die and he's going to give those things up. And so hoping that he can come to Jesus and add eternity to what he already has, he now comes and he asks this question saying, good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. Now, what Jesus is not saying in this is that he is not God and therefore he should not be called good. But what he is seeking to do is to plant or sow the thought into the mind of this man that he is either speaking to God or he's speaking to someone who has absolutely no moral authority to impart anything or answer any question regarding eternal life. He's saying to him, I'm either God or I'm nothing. And so Jesus then goes on and he answers the question in verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. So what he does is he takes five of the Ten Commandments, the commandments that deal with man's relationship with man, and he lays them out for this man to assess his life against and compare himself side by side. But really, he plays right into this young man's hands because these are not his struggle. He struggles in his life with none of these things. And so he can honestly consider, think about his past, weigh them against these commandments and his reply to Jesus in verse 21, it says, and he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. And probably at this point in the conversation, one eyebrow is furrowed downward and the other one is furrowed upward because in one sense, there's an element of hope. Well, maybe I am qualified. Maybe I have what it takes to have eternal life. But on the other side, he realizes in hearing Jesus reply, well, I'm doing the things that you're saying but I know inside I have the sense that I'm still mortal and that I don't have eternal life within me. So if I'm keeping the commands that you're telling me I'm to keep and yet I'm still not experiencing age-abiding life and I know I'm not in a right relationship with God, then what gives? And he opens the door for Jesus to speak even further. 
And so it says, now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. There's one thing, one problem that you have. And then he puts his finger on the one area of this young, rich ruler's life that he was completely unwilling to yield to God. He says, sell all that you have and distribute unto the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this, that this is not a prerequisite for all of us coming into a relationship with God, that if we want to be in a relationship with him, then that requires that we sell everything that we have, distribute unto the poor, and then come follow him, that we would have treasures in heaven. Jesus says this to this young man specifically, and he does it for two reasons. The first reason that Jesus does it is to reveal to him his heart, to show him what's going on inside himself. And that is that he didn't care about God, but he was only securing or seeking to secure eternal life with the riches and the power that he had. There was no desire to give his life to God, to live for God, to go to heaven. He wanted his life now, and he saw God as a means of extending his experience within uh, this world and the things that this world gives. The second reason Jesus says this is to reveal the chains that this young man's wealth had laid upon his soul. Herein, this young man thought that these riches were his ticket to freedom or the thing that brought him freedom. But in reality, what Jesus is exposing is that these riches that you so cling to and are so fond of, that these very things are the things that are keeping you back from what life is really all about. And your unwillingness to part with these things is keeping you from experiencing the real things or the best things. And so it says in verse 23 that when he heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. And so the problem that this young man has is not that he's guilty of breaking the second five commandments that are given uh, in, in the law of Moses, but the problem that he has is that he's unwilling to follow Jesus and unwilling to commit his life to God if following God is gonna cost him that which is dearest unto him. And thus this young man is unwilling to put God first in everything in his life. Jesus puts his finger on the one thing in the one area of his life that he is unwilling to surrender unto God. And so his response is sorrowful. And the reason he's sorrowful is because in order to get what he doesn't have, eternal life, he'll have to give up what he's trying to preserve and he's unwilling to do it. And the other gospel tells us that at this point he goes away sad And it tells us in Mark's gospel that Jesus, looking at him, loved him, but he let him go. In other words, Jesus didn't change the demands because he found that this young man was unwilling to do what it was that God was asking him to do. Now understand this, church, that Jesus does this in every life that comes to him asking questions about eternal life. He will eventually put his finger on the area of our life that is the hardest for us to surrender. And what he asks of us is that we yield to him every part of our life and every part of our heart and we put him first in everything to the laying down and the surrender of everything else. And what Jesus is teaching us through this text right here is that in this relationship that he calls us into, he is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. 
And those are the terms of this relationship that he calls. Now, if Jesus were nothing more than a man or a guru or a one who was laying out an ideology, then he would have no right to make that claim upon our lives. But because he's God and the one that made us and because he's good, he has every right to make that request and that demand of us as we come into that relationship with him is that the terms are that all things are laid down at the foot of the cross and there is nothing that can be in your heart or in your life that is unsanctified. And when you, upon the potter's wheel of God's work in your life and his hand comes to that point where you're unwilling to yield and there's resistance, at that point, God stops working within that life. Because unless the clay is completely yielded, then he's unable to do in that life what it is that he's wanting to do within that life. And so he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Well, then Jesus and his disciples get into a conversation after the fact about the relationship between riches and salvation. Verse 24. It says that when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, um, you know, Bible scholars, students, people have tried to make this something other than it is. Well, it's obviously impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You know, that little thing that you can't even get the thread through most of the time. You know, you're cutting it again, you're licking it again, trying to get it through. And he's saying it's easier for a camel to go through that space, the eye of the needle, than it is for the rich man to go in. So some have said, well, the needle's eye was actually a gate in Jerusalem that was very narrow and very short. And in order for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, it meant that the camel had to be unladed with, you know, it could carry nothing in with, you know, and, and they come up with all these things. But you know what Jesus was saying when he said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? He was saying that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I believe that that's what Jesus meant by this when he said it. And the amazing thing is that his disciples realized that that's exactly what he meant when he said it because their response to that in verse 26 is that they said unto him when they heard it, who then can be saved? And that's a great question. Because when you consider the, the, the whole spectrum of humanity, and if you were to arrange all of humanity according to those that have wealth, and you put the poorest person on one end and the richest person on the other, where do you draw the line wherein something is called wealthy? Well, if what Jesus just laid before the rich ruler is to sell everything, then that would mean that the only man that could qualify for this is the man who has absolutely nothing, and everyone that possesses anything now therefore is called the rich man, and he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so in their reason, they look at Jesus and say, it is absolutely impossible then, who then can be saved? And let me tell you this, church, that us here in Dutchess County, when you lay us somewhere in that spectrum, we are way on the side of rich and prosperous, according to the standard whereby the most of the world lives. And so they look at Jesus and it says they're amazed. And so Jesus then says to them, and here's the resolution of it. He says, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so what Jesus is saying here very essentially, and we must understand it, what he would say to the rich ruler and what he would say to anyone who would come to Jesus in this way, unwilling to yield anything, but particularly riches, he would say this, is that your money cannot save you. 
is that at the end of the day, no matter how much you have, you cannot use it in any way that will purchase you a place in heaven or earn for you eternal life. If you can get a camel through the eye of a needle, then there's some way that you might be able to do that. But it is impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, someone's going to try it, the Mythbusters, you know, whatever, and they'll do it piece by piece, you know, in the whole thing and say, see, it's possible. Listen, if someone would work that hard, they could get in. But what they'd have to do is keep the whole law perfectly and never sin any day in their life. That is far impossible. Jesus is also saying this. He's saying that in order for a rich man to be saved, God must bring that person to a place where their savior and their soul is of more value to them than their money. And listen, only God can do that in the life of a rich person. Only God can bring a rich person to a place where their soul is of more valuable to them, uh, value to them than their money. And when God does that, then God is able to save that person's life. And so um, then Peter uh, pipes up. This is pre-Pentecost Peter, which means he says stupid things all the time. And he says in verse 28, it says, then Peter said, lo, and sometimes I think that's an abbreviation for Lord, because that was too hard to say, you know, because he says that all the time. He's like, lo, that's what they called him when they were walking. Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And I think Jesus must have smiled. I bet the half smile came, you know, really, Pete, you left a lot. You left a boat, you left a pile of fish, you know, you left a sick wife. You, you're really sacrificing for the kingdom. You know, big difference between the, the rich ruler and Peter. But he says, Lord, we've left all and we followed you. And he said unto them, Jesus, verily I say unto you that there is no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life ever." lasting and so here's what jesus is saying here's the word of jesus to anyone that would ask the question is it worth it to give up whatever it is that i'm asked to give up for the sake of the relationship that he's calling me into jesus would say this he would say that there is no one that has ever left anything for my sake that will regret having done it that there is no price that we could pay it is impossible to outgive god You cannot give up anything in this life for his sake uh, and on the other side of that feel regret because you did it. And so in verse 31, it says that he took unto him then the 12 and he said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted upon and they shall scourge him and put him to death And the third day he shall rise again. And in verse 34, it says, And they understood none of those things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. And so Jesus basically tells them now, as they're approaching Jerusalem, coming into that final week, he says, you guys must understand that everything that's been written about in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the sacrifice of the, the Son of God for the sin of the world is about to take place. I'm going to be scourged, spat upon, spitefully entreated. Ultimately, I will die and then rise again the third day. But it tells us that when he said this saying to them, that it went right over the top of their head. Three 
phrases in one verse in verse 34 it says they understood none of these things it was hidden from them and it says they didn't know the things which were spoken it completely went over their heads 100 percent and so we see in this there's two reasons why they didn't see understand or perceive the things that jesus was saying number one and this is always true is that nothing can be grasped by us unless the holy spirit gives us the understanding to be able to grasp the things that are said now i don't believe that's the reason why they didn't hear what jesus is saying here it might have been a part of it but i believe that the greater reason that they didn't hear what jesus was saying is because they didn't want to hear what jesus was saying that day because what jesus was saying to them was in such stark contrast to their expectation of what was going to take place when they went into Jerusalem, that they dismissed it as irrelevant. In other words, they thought they were going to Jerusalem to establish a kingdom. They thought they were going up there and Jesus was going to overthrow the oppression of Rome, that he was going to set up his throne and that they would sit with him ruling and reigning and that they'd usher in the Davidic glory that they had in years past. And now he's saying to them things so contrary to that. He's going to die. He's going to be spitefully treated, spat upon. He's going to right what is, what is he talking about and they just dismiss it it's irrelevant this must be one of those crazy parables that he tells us he's saying something but it means something altogether other than what he's saying what we must understand is this and it's something that jesus maybe was seeking to impart to them in the whole thing is that we must be surrendered to the lord in our walk with him not only as it concerns just our possessions but also as it concerns our plans and our expectations for our lives or the way that things are going to turn out god promised to these people a kingdom and a kingdom will come he promised them that they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel and they will sit on 12 thrones thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel but it's not going to happen in the way or in the time frame or in the manner that they are expecting it's going to happen differently and the same is true for you and me. God promises good things upon our lives. He says that he works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He said that he knows the plans that he has for us, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring us to an expected end. The Bible says that we would, Paul prayed that we would have understanding of the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's got something for us to do. But our expectation of how that's all going to play out and the way that God is actually going to bring those things to pass sometimes can be far different than we could understand or realize. And what we must always be is surrendered to him in every area of our lives so that the things that happen to us are in his hands as well as everything that we possess. Three months before I gave my life to Jesus, when I was 19 years old, I was a student at SUNY Purchase down in White Plains. And it was the night before final exams of my freshman year of college. And um, I won't tell you why, but I was on the roof of the library looking for something that I shouldn't have to do things that I shouldn't do. And the library, we would go up there because it was the center point on the campus and it was high up on a hill and you could look out from up there and you could see just a, 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 a far distance and it was just a, a peaceful place to go and nobody knew you were up there. It was a big slanted building and you could pull yourself up onto the lower flat part and then shimmy up the slant, the metal roof, and get up onto the flat part on top. And I went up there about 10 o'clock at night looking for something and while I was up there, it began to rain. 
And so I found what I was looking for. And as I sought to descend from the roof, the metal roof had gotten wet and I began to slide down it like a water slide. And I tried to stop myself, slow myself down, but I couldn't do it, just gaining speed. I hit the bottom flat part, skated across the gravel flat at the bottom and then shot off the edge of the roof, fell down into a stairwell and landed right here on my head, right right on this, for me, my right, your left part of my face. I broke three bones in my face uh, upon the impact. It was about a 12-foot fall. And I stood right up. I remember that. And I went like this, and my hand was covered with blood. And I said to my friend who was waiting below, I said, I'm okay. And he said, dude, (laughs) you're bleeding out of your eye. Sit down. And that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember, I gained consciousness for just a moment and I sat, I was in an ambulance and they were cutting the clothes off of me in there and uh, in, in the thing and they said, relax, relax. And then I went out again and I was in and out of a coma for a span of a week. I almost lost my right eye. The pressure had built up so far behind it that the MRI shows that my eye was protruded more out of my face than it was in, in its place. A blood clot began to form in my brain and they thought they were going to lose me. And they came in after that week was over and the doctor said, you don't know how lucky you are to be alive. And there's a few miraculous things that happened that week and I did not know Jesus Christ. And if I had died that night when I made impact with the pavement or in the days following, I would have plunged into a Christless eternity because not only did I not know Jesus personally, I had purposefully rejected him consciously. And had he let me slip into death that night, I would have died apart from him. Now, by his grace, not only did I not die, but I healed. And I, you know, I, I know you can't fix this, you know, but for, based upon what I went through, you know, he healed me quite well, except there's one thing, is that there's a lot of nerve damage in this part of my face. And any time something touches it, it drives me insane. It sends pins and needles all throughout my whole head. So if the window's down in the car and my hair blows and tickles here, it just, the whole thing, you'll see me all the time. You'll notice it now. You'll see me going like this, you know, because it just drives me nuts, all this thing, the thing here. But here's what that has done for me is when, when I feel that feeling and I remember and I feel that tingling within my head. I remember, God, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price and that every day that I live for you belongs to you and you can do with my life whatever you want. And there are times that come within my life that God does things in a way that I don't want him to do. And he makes things happen in a way that I would never choose. Or he brings things to me and he says, I want you to do this. And there are things that I don't want to do. And inevitably, in that argument, at some point, I'll find myself rubbing my face and God will say, do you remember what I did? And it ends all argument. God, you own my life. And that is true for every one of us here. If you are in Jesus Christ tonight, he died on the cross to pay for your eternal salvation. And if you are in him tonight, then whatever it is that he asks of your life, whether it be that you obtain his goodness and promise through a path of suffering, or whether he allows things to happen in a way that you would never choose, he is worthy that we should follow him because his promise is that he is good. And he's proven that through the death of his son. And so he teaches us that we must be surrendered to him, not just in the things that we possess being yielded into his hand, but in the very outcome and path and circumstances of our lives, we must trust him completely. And so then it came to pass in verse 35 that as he was come near unto Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. 
And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And so he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Now, wouldn't you think that it would be obvious what Jesus would want him to do for him? I mean, anyone who's blind, he's feeling his way. They bring him to Jesus. He's standing face to face with him. And Jesus asks the obvious, what do you want me to do? But notice that Jesus wants him to ask. And I believe that's true in each of our lives as well. How often is it that we think, well, God knows the thing that I want or the thing that I need. Why doesn't he just do it? You know why he doesn't just do it? Because if he just did it in our lives, every time there was a need, we would never talk to him at all. But he desires for us to have fellowship with him. And so he says to this man, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And so Jesus said unto him, receive thy sight for thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave uh, praise to God. And so Jesus heals this blind man. And here's what this blind man teaches us. Here's his testimony to you and I uh, tonight as it concerns our relationship with the Lord ourselves. Is that if we have an encounter with Jesus Christ, then there should be some evidence of that encounter that we've had to those around us. If I came in here tonight and sat up in the stool and I said to you guys, you know, I would just appreciate if you gave me a little extra patience tonight and grace because uh, I was on my way here and I was, you know, walking across the parking lot and I got hit by a a van. Uh, It was just traveling real fast and it didn't see me and it just, I mean, it just walloped me, head on collision. The thing was totaled and, you know, and, and I said, so just please have patience with me. Now you would look at me and you'd see, okay, well, his clothes are, are intact. He, he's regular in his appearance. You know, he doesn't look weird or, or anything. You know, he's, he's either, you know, Superman or he's lying to us. You know, you would expect that if I got hit by a van, that there would be some visible evidence of that collision in the way that I appear. Now you and I, we have a testimony. We say that we've had an encounter with the living God. We say that we've been born again that our lives have been redeemed, that the living Christ has come by his Holy Spirit inside of us. He's removed our sin. He's given us his light and his salt. He's placed it within us. And we have new life because of Jesus Christ. Now, I would suggest to you that that experience should be more of an impact in our lives than if we were to be hit by a van while we're crossing the road. And so if we say that we've had an encounter with Jesus Christ and there's a relationship that we have with him, but yet there's no evidence in our life that that relationship is is real and that it's taking place, then it stands to reason that maybe we haven't had an encounter with the living Christ. And what this man testifies to us is this, is that if you have had a relationship with him or are in a relationship with him, then the difference in your life from what you were before to what you are becoming now should be the same difference or to the same level as someone who was blind that can now see. Because if this man was blind, you can figure what he looked like before. And if he can now see, there's a whole new lot on life for him. He knows where he's going. There's a skip in his step. 
He knows what's, what's happening. He's sufficient in and of himself. And so there will be a tangible effect upon my life if I'm truly in a relationship with him. And so this story teaches us that this relationship is not one-sided, is that God plays a part within our lives as we yield our lives to him. Uh, I would have liked to have gotten through Zacchaeus tonight, the first 10 verses of chapter 19, because it plays very well into um, kind of the theme of what's been taking uh, place within the, the, the previous passages, but we'll stop where we are tonight. But I, what I would like to um, do, just because Zacchaeus, and, and I, I'll try not to be redundant next week, but because Zacchaeus is uh, such a powerful story, we're told that he's a very rich man, and we're told that he has an encounter with Christ, and we're told that he's given salvation. And the lesson of Zacchaeus' life that we see as you read it, you can read ahead, is that impossible is easy for God. Because he just said to the rich young ruler that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But yet we see a very rich man, this man Zacchaeus, entering the kingdom of God. And we see that not only did Jesus grant to him salvation, but that he willingly relinquished of all of his goods to give to him. And the the moral of the story or the lesson behind what what happened in Zacchaeus' life is that there is no one anywhere that is an impossible cause for God. That no matter where you fall on the spectrum of wealth or poverty, where you stand on the spectrum of sinner or saint, that there's no one that is outside of the reach of God's grace. But the terms of the relationship are his to determine. And so he gives to us the testimony concerning the Pharisee and the publican that we come to him by mercy and not according to our works. Do you realize that there's an opponent, an opposition, or the musicians can come, but there's there's an opponent, there's an opposition to each one of these things that are set before us tonight. In the vignette about the Pharisee and the publican, it's pride and self-righteousness. Pride and self-righteousness is the enemy of mercy and grace. And so if we're proud and self-righteous, it keeps us from entering into a relationship with, with God through faith in Jesus Christ. In the sermon on the child, or the, 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 the picture of the child, the childlike faith that we're called into, the opposition to that is our intellect of trying to figure God out and trying to reason through how God works in every small thing and saying, well, I'll come to him when I understand him. So our intellect can be an opponent, opponent an opposing factor. For the rich young ruler, it's competing affections, competing with absolute surrender. It's competing affections, things that we love instead of him. And on and on it goes. You can go through and you can read the things that are there. But here's what we need to understand, is that he calls us into a relationship with himself. And it's all by his grace. And it's all for our good. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we consider, Lord, these things that have been placed before us. And we ask you, God, that you would take the the scripture, that you take the testimony of these uh, verses and that you'd write them in us, Lord, and that you'd strengthen our relationship with you. And the Father, you would put your finger in those areas of our life that are yet unyielded and that, God, you would bring us into a closer walk with you. You would teach us to trust you, Lord, with every part of our lives and even the circumstances of our lives and that we might be completely yours. So take us, Lord, in your hands. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Send us forth with your purpose. May we have the joy of our salvation. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.